I never felt that Tim was talking to me in order to argue or for that matter to convert. I always thought that Tim was talking to me and, and everyone else I saw him interact with in order to listen and to understand. Um, and he was curious about people as people. I think that's part of what attracted him, uh, people to him as, as a pastor. He wasn't going to tell you what Jesus said you had to do with your life. He wanted to understand your life and then help you understand how Jesus could be part of that life. The Village Square, a nervy bunch of liberals and conservatives who believe that disagreement and dialogue make for a good conversation, a good country, and a good time. At the Village Square, we talk about politics, religion, and race. You know, the topics your mom taught you never to discuss in polite company. Listen, at the Village Square, we make pigs fly. Welcome to Village Squarecast. This is Corey Nathan hosting for you today. Thank you so much for joining us for a special bonus fee drop of talking politics and religion without killing each other, which is also part of the Democracy Group. As you'll be able to hear pretty quickly, it just happens to be the podcast that I host. <laughs> I'm not ashamed to do a shameless plug here and there. <laughs> Um, but in all seriousness, this was truly one of my favorite conversations with two of my favorite people. In this episode of Talking Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other, Pete Weiner and John Rausch join me for a tribute to Tim Keller and Mike Gerson. Peter Weiner and Jonathan Rausch, you'll recognize both of them as friends of the Village Square. They're both prolific authors and writers whose work appears in such publications as The Atlantic and The New York Times. They were gracious enough to join me to talk about their friends, Tim Keller, longtime pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, and Michael Gerson, the presidential speechwriter and columnist with The Washington Post. Sadly, Tim Keller and Mike Gerson both passed away within the last year. You know, in some ways, this was a very different episode than we normally do on TPNR. But in a lot of other ways, it really captures the essence of what the program is all about. My guests, Pete and John, have so many differences politically, religiously, across so many other domains. But throughout this conversation, you can hear their genuine affection and respect for each other, as well as their love and admiration for Tim Keller and Mike Gerson. And that's really what's at the heart of the work we do on talking politics and religion without killing each other, as well as the work we do at the Village Square. We are so proud that Village Squarecast is a part of the Democracy Group, which is a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. Now, please enjoy the special episode of talking politics and religion without killing each other. This podcast is part of the Democracy Group. We're going to go mid-conversation here. I was listening to uh, a, um, it was a New York Times podcast this morning, 
Ross Douthat is on with a couple of the other journalists there. And they were talking about uh, the possibility of aliens and the, the possibility that there's conspiracy, that the government is hiding it. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm actually open to the possibility that there's, you know, life out there in the vast universe. But there's no way there's a conspiracy if for no other reason than Donald Trump was president for four years. There's no way he would keep his mouth shut about that. So anyway, but we could figure out that in, uh, you know, maybe a minute. And then, um, you know, why God allows suffering in about two and we should be good to go. <laughs> Let me guess was on that question on that conversation with uh, Ross Douthat. Uh, was he on the fence in terms of where he ended up on that I, You know, question? I didn't get quite that far. I think they took it in uh, in good humor. So I have to finish the rest of the interview. And he, apparently he has some pieces that he's uh, either written about it already or he's preparing. So it'll be interesting to hear his, his take on it. <laughs> so. I think Ross's position would be that he is against the people who are against the people who are against the idea <laughs> that all of the stupid people believe in the conspiracy. <laughs> Anti, anti, anti. Okay. All right. I'm following. Um, let me do our intro really quick. Welcome to the special edition of Talk of Politics and Religion Without Killing Each Other. I am your host, as you might have might be able to tell, Corey Nathan. And um, in all sincerity, it's an honor to have conversations with the kinds of folks we have on the program today, and especially the kinds of wonderful human beings we'll be discussing. Our program is a part of the Democracy Group, uh, a network of podcasts that examines what's broken in our democracy and how we can work together to fix it. And as always, it'd be so helpful if you hit that subscribe or follow button in your podcast app. If you're telling someone about our show, just say to look up Talking Politics with an apostrophe after the end uh, in Talking, T-A-L-K-I-N apostrophe politics. We talk to politics and religion without killing each other. That helps get the word out so more people can participate in the conversation, like the very meaningful one we're having today with Jonathan Rausch and Peter Weiner. Uh, we're so fortunate to be joined again by these two fine gentlemen. John Rausch, as you'll remember, is the author of numerous books, including The Constitution of Knowledge, A Defense of Truth, which, by the way, I, I, I don't know if you saw the note, I, Russell Moore engages in his upcoming book. Uh, so you get, you get uh, I'll call you John, John Rausch, page 82. <laughs> Um, he, uh, John is also a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution and a contributing writer at The Atlantic, among other pu publications. Pete Weiner is also a contributing writer at The Atlantic, as well as The New York Times. He's a senior fellow at the Trinity Forum and the author of several books, including The Death of Politics, How to Heal Our Frayed Republic After Trump. But today we'll be actually speaking of um, attributions, your book and your work, uh, Pete, came up in an interview I was listening to uh, within the last six months of Tim's life, uh, Tim Keller's life. Um, so today I'm already sort of teasing it. We'll, we'll be talking about two men, both of whom were at the top of my list of people I wanted to have on this program, talking about Michael Gerson and Tim Keller. Uh, sadly, we lost both gentlemen within the last year. Mike passed away last November. Tim died just last month. Uh, but we're lucky to have John and Pete here because they were all friends and had a big impact on each other's lives. So number one, thanks so much for joining us again, John, Pete. It's so good to be with you. Uh, I consider you friends now, and it's uh, it's a blessing to to consider you such. It's great to be with you. Thanks. Me too, Corey. I'm, I'm happy to be here, especially to talk about these two amazing humans. Yeah, yeah. So I thought a good way to start would simply to be to have you introduce our guests of honor, Michael Gerson and Tim Keller. Um, and 
if you want to do it the the other way that I thought, but I'll tell you what my thinking was. One, John, um, I referenced an article you had in Religion Religious News Service. I, I think that's the name of the publication. Um, uh, a tribute to Tim. So I thought I'd have you introduce Tim to our, our audience. I'm sure a lot of folks are familiar with uh, Tim Keller and his work. And Pete, um, maybe you could start by introducing Michael Gerson because you work together so closely. Sure. Um, I met Mike in the uh, mid to late 1990s. I was at Empower America uh, at the time, which was a conservative think tank. And um, it was co-chaired by Gene Kirkpatrick and Jack Kemp and, and Bill Bennett. And I had worked with, with Bill, and um, I was policy director. And Mike was doing speeches for, uh, for Jack Kemp. And he came into the office, and we had a mutual friend who introduced me uh, to Mike. And I remember the first conversation um, that we had. Uh, and among other things, we talked about Malcolm Ugridge, who was a great British journalist of the 20th century, who had started on the left and, and had uh, migrated uh, to, to uh uh, conservatism, and he had become a Christian over the course of his journey. And so we had a really fascinating conversation about Muggeridge. Not that many people were really familiar with Muggeridge's work. Mike's insights were really good, and I just really connected with him. And that became began the friendship that uh, that we had. Uh, that was you know probably the closest uh, of any that I had over the last twenty twenty five uh, years. Um, we talked all the time. Uh, we worked together. We were colleagues um, in the Bush administration. He was the chief speechwriter for President Bush. He hired me as his deputy director. I did that for uh, for a year and a half, and then I, I took another position. But we worked extremely closely uh, in the White House, and we stayed in touch afterward. We co-authored books together. We co-authored essays together. Uh, we emailed a lot and, and spoke a lot, and uh, he really became an intimate friend, uh, someone whom, whom I admired and liked and delighted in his, uh, in his company. You know, it just occurred to me that you were uh, working in the White House uh, during the years that the West Wing was running. Did you happen to watch that show, and how uh, unrealistic or realistic was it? You know, oddly enough, I never watched it. Um, I uh, I didn't have a, a particular longing to do it. Maybe because I, I worked in the West Wing. Maybe it wasn't, or so uh, uh, maybe I I didn't have a particular need to see how how it was portrayed. But others that I know uh, that uh, that watched it um, actually thought it was a pretty good representation of of uh, of what was what was going on. I, I should clarify, my office was in the ex Eisenhower Executive Office Building, but of course I was in, in the West Wing fair amount. Yeah, I would imagine um, being in the trenches together, so to speak, uh, brought you and, and Mike pretty pretty close. Yeah, it really did. Yeah, it really did. Uh, you know, when you when you work in the in, in, in the White House uh, and maybe even especially in, in speech writing because of the nature of that of that job. That, uh, that that brings you together. But as I said, we were very close before it started. We were very close um, afterward. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was a friendship of, uh, you know, of, of a kind of Aristotelian view of, of the three elements of, uh, of friendship. And I think uh, that, that his and my relationship had, had, uh, had all of those, uh, those elements. So, um, you know, I, I miss him to this, to this day. Um, and he lived an admirable life. And um, he was extremely admirable as he walked uh, toward death as well. Mm. And, and John, feel free to, to jump in if you have questions. But um, 
before we get too far down the road here, would you mind introducing our audience to Tim Keller? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, Tim Keller was a pastor. He was a Christian apologist, meaning someone who explained Christianity to people who weren't necessarily believers. He was a theologian, someone who thought and wrote deeply about Christianity. Um, And he was a church planter. He was possibly most famous for founding Redeemer Church, which was an evangelical Presbyterian church in the heart of New York City in Manhattan, which, you know, is supposedly the maw of the secular world, which is, you know, most resistant to Christianity, and built a large congregation there and then embarked on seating other congregations in other places. Um, So he was also an organizer and activist. I did not know Tim the way Pete knew Mike, or for that matter, Tim. I only met Tim once in the flesh at a meeting in Washington where we were kind of across the table from each other. But it was just very quickly apparent to me, even in that formal setting, that this was a man of extraordinary depth and that he could talk about Christianity in a way that that bridged the Christian world to my world. I'm I'm an atheist. I have been since age five. I'm a Jew. I'm a Jew, though. I'm. Um, I don't doubt my Jewish identity either. There are a lot of Jews who who don't believe in God. It's kind of okay in Judaism. Um, and and but I identified as Tim as someone that I could connect with. Um, later on, in the past three years or so, over the pandemic period, I got to know Tim because we both became members of a Zoom group of pastors and journalists and people who are in the world or around the world of religion, some seminarians. And we'd get on and talk about, you know, sometimes the small questions in life, like personal problems. But very often we talk about the big questions in life, like, you know, why do why does God allow suffering? This is a question that, you know, we might get into. I don't know, but it's to me, it's one of the two great disqualifying puzzles of, of religion. And Tim had a knack for going deeper on these issues than, than I think really anyone else I knew. He had so much learning, but he was also so honest about them. He never cheated. He never cut corners in order to understand or explain his faith. If he didn't know the answer or if he just thought he might be wrong, he would say so. So he kind of brought me into his world and allowed me to understand maybe better than anyone else has, except possibly Pete Weiner, who's on this call, um, how Christianity can make sense. I'm curious, a lot of apologetics really comes down to not contentious debate because it, it derives from um, one central quote in the Bible that talks about being always ready to make a, a defense for the hope that's within you, but with gentleness and respect. Um, but it really does come down to winning uh, a contest of, of rhetoric. But it sounds like your experience, uh, you, you described Tim Keller as an apologist, but it, it sounds like his flavor of uh, apologia, if you will, it was a different one. Is that fair to say? Yeah, it was completely different from that. I never felt that Tim was 
talking to me in order to argue or for that matter to convert. I always thought that Tim was talking to me and, and everyone else I saw him interact with in order to listen and to understand. Um, and he was curious about people as people. I think that's part of what attracted him, uh, people to him as, as a pastor. He wasn't going to tell you what Jesus said you had to do with your life. He wanted to understand your life and then help you understand how Jesus could be part of that life. So that's interesting that in your conversations, you never felt like he was, uh, for lack of a better word, evangelizing to you um, or, or even trying to convince you necessarily. But would you say that you were persuaded on certain topics or, um, or points that, that you had arrived at, or at the very least, did he um, cause you to question certain conclusions that you had arrived at? Well, yeah, but but kind of indirectly, you know, on the on the core issues of 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 why I'm an atheist, it, it comes down actually to my psychological makeup, um, which is that, you know, I think for a lot of people, belief in God adds a certain richness or dimensionality or quality of life that I don't experience. I've known since age five that I thought the idea that there's you know a big daddy in the sky that works miracles and gets involved with our lives despite the size of the cosmos and looks suspiciously like my parents, I always thought that was ridiculous. Um, I came to see it though as less ridiculous, not on sort of the intellectual grounds that we argue about. But because of respect for Tim and some other Christians like Tim, Pete is one of them, the late Mark McIntosh is another, who showed me that their relationship with, with God was, was not just intellectual. It wasn't just belief or doctrine or scripture. It was a way of approaching life. It was a way of coming at people and ideas that is humble and sincere. Now, now that's great whether you're religion, religious or not. But Tim modeled that in a way that I think I could describe as Christ-like. And that had the effect on me of, of kind of almost rescuing my faith in evangelical Christianity, which, which just crashed terribly over the MAGA period when I saw so much hypocrisy and cruelty and, you know, joyful embrace by evangelicals, so many of them, uh, the majority of white evangelicals, just embraced the least Christ-like figure in American public life that, that maybe we've seen since, I don't know, um, the, the, the civil rights movement, you know, some of Bull Connor in the South. And Tim kind of brought me back from that and reminded me of, of what Christianity can be like. So in that sense, yeah, he was profoundly influential. You know, I know, I know we, we've talked about this before. Um, and, and Pete, I think it's something that, that you've grappled with earnestly and, and humbly. Um, if it's coincidentally in that chapter in Dr. Moore's upcoming book, it starts with, something that he didn't put it this way, but something that really pissed him off. The two words, Jesus saves. He saw the words, Jesus saves being held by the a bunch of guys that were storming the Capitol. So he was talking about um, these two concepts, a gallows being put up uh, as if they were going to hang Mike Pence. 
in the same place, in the same march with Jesus saves. But how do you, um, like I said, I, I know we've covered some of this ground before, but how, how do you, uh, how, how do you account for that, Pete? Uh, human depravity, uh, I suppose. Um, you know, I think when you're uh, carrying a sign that says Jesus saves uh, and uh, standing, standing under a gallows, uh, those things are not reconcilable. Um, and in that case, I don't think it's particularly complicated. It, what's happening here is that the, uh, faith uh, is, has been so massively deformed that it probably doesn't constitute faith in any serious way. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a cultural or a psychological or a sociological phenomenon. Um, but it's not just that faith has been subordinated. I think faith has been shattered. And people, you know, it's like putting uh, lipstick on a pig. I mean, it's, 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 it's taking some of these really nasty, ugly, dark sensibilities and sentiments and saying, well, they're... they're, they're in this case, they're Christian, um, and they're, and they're not, um, look, everybody is, 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 um, fall short. Everybody struggles. Uh, nobody's perfect, but, um, if you are living a life that on deep and fundamental ways is antithetical to the teachings of Jesus, then you're not really a follower of, of, uh, of Jesus. Now, why people decide to claim to be followers of Jesus, why they would hold up signs that says Jesus saves, uh, that's probably sui generis, really specific to whatever those individuals have gone through in their life and why they've decided to attach their, uh, their actions and their attitudes to Christianity as opposed to something, uh, something else. But, uh, you know, Jesus said, you'll know them by, by their fruits. And if you're dealing with people whose uh, fruits uh, are hate, uh, then, then I think in the, at the end of the day, they're, they're, not, uh, they're not reconcilable. You know, so we're talking about the, you know, January 6th, um, but I can't help but connect that. That, that, that was certainly an overt abuse. Uh, I think you and I would, would certainly agree of uh, the language, uh, the biblical, you know, scriptural language and symbols um, I, I think that part of what we talked about last time is that one of the underlying causes or um, conditions, if you will, is, is a sense of oppositional, of a, a sense of us versus them. You know, and, and interestingly, I was listening to tributes to Tim Keller, and they had not so subtle oppositional tones. You know, for example, one tribute I was listening to um, – uh, the day or two days after he died, uh, talked about uh, a talk that Tim gave at Princeton Theological Seminary. Right. And the un, the un, um, it, it was not necessarily spoken, but the understanding was Princeton Theological Seminary. I mean, you know, talk about, uh, you know, the left of left and, or, you know, another reference to the fact that he set up shop in, in New York, New York City. Um, and there was just such an oppositional tone like we're all in this joke together, this this really bad joke together, because we know about all those people from New York, and we know about Princeton Theological Seminary. So I don't know. Do, am I am I reading too much into that? You think, or or is there something there? No, I think there's something there uh, for for sure, because you're describing a disposition that that uh, 
that exists. And I think it's more widespread now than it, than it was in the past. I think it's always, it's always existed. Um, but I think you've put your finger on something, which is these sort of seething resentments, roiling grievances that, that people have. Um, and it's, it's almost like, uh, you know, a lightning bolt. It's got to, it's got to contact some make contact with the ground and it's going to hit somewhere. Uh, sometimes it, it hit toward, toward Tim, sometimes it hit toward, toward other, uh, toward other, other people. Um, but this is, this is why the deformation of, of sensibilities, of dispositions, of attitudes is so important or the reverse of that, which is the shaping, the proper shaping of sensibilities and dispositions, uh, and outlooks and attitudes is so, um, is so important. Um, because faith, and biblical verses, we've talked about this before. Without that, uh, can turn into something that's you know that's 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 very very destructive. Um, and you know we've seen it throughout Christian history, and we see it today in very vivid ways. Which is, a lot of people who claim to be followers of Jesus are living lives that are not only contrary to his teachings, but they are they're doing active damage to the witness itself.